Welcome to Amplify, the personal brand entrepreneur show. Today on the show, Bob is speaking with Dory Clark. And I think for most people, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to find the perfect thing, the right thing. It is a heck of a lot easier to to, to be able to put on our, our critical hat and say, okay, why is this wrong for me? Why is this not going to work? And that information is just as valuable, if not more valuable. Hi there, and welcome back to Amplify, the personal brand entrepreneur podcast. I'm Bob Gentle, and every Monday I'm joined by amazing people who share what makes their business work. If you're new, then take a second to subscribe through your player app. And while you're listening, join our Facebook community. Just visit amplifyme.fm forward slash insiders, and you'll be taken right there. Hi there, and welcome back to Amplify, the personal brand entrepreneur show. My name is Bob Gentle, and every week I'm joined by amazing people who share what makes their business work. So this week, I am thrilled to welcome Dory Clark to the show. Dory is somebody I and lots of my friends admire, and I am more than delighted to have you on the show. Dory, welcome to the show. Bob, thank you so much. Really glad to be talking with you. So for those people who don't know who you are, why don't you start, as I often ask everybody, to just tell us a little bit about who you are, where you are, and the kind of work you do. Absolutely. I live in New York City now. I write business and career books. My upcoming one is called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And I teach for Duke University and Columbia University in the U.S. And big picture, what I try to do through my books and my executive coaching and, and my work in general is to help individuals and companies get their message heard in a really noisy and crowded environment and find a way to break through. So for the listener, you have written a ton of books and I'm going to also have to say, you have more content on Audible than I could actually count. But book titles like Stand Out, Reinventing You, Entrepreneurial, Entrepreneurial You, God, that's a hard word. Shouldn't be a hard word for me, should it? And the most recent title, The Long Game, which we're going to talk about a lot, but it's almost like you wrote those books for my audience specifically. And we're going to kind of touch on some of the themes particularly in the new book, The Long Game, or as the title suggests, The Long Game. And also stand out for me, I think, is a super important question. But before we get to that, whenever I hear of anybody living in Manhattan, I have an automatic picture that they're perched high up and they can see for miles. How high up in Manhattan are you? I'm uh, on the ninth floor. so That's uh, not too high for Manhattan. Yeah, for, for Manhattan, it's it's kind of average, I'd have to say. I, I strove to get something high up enough that it would be interesting to my cats, but uh, but not so high that it would be scary for them. <laughs> so the teaching at Duke University and, oh, I know the other one, I remember it. Yeah, Columbia. Columbia, yes. What is it you actually teach there? What are you working with people on? Well, appropriately enough, at Columbia, what I actually teach is personal brand. Uh, and at Duke, I teach uh, for, gosh, the past seven, eight years, I've taught a regular program called Communication for Leaders that is about different different forms, different ways that leaders can communicate effectively. So it's kind of a combination of effective presentations, crisis communication, and social media. So where I would like to start, I think there's this question, and it's a question that I return to again and again and again, which is, 
if you want to stand out for something, you need to put a, a marker in the ground and say, this is me, this is who I am, this is what I do, this is what I want to be known for. And a lot of people struggle with that question. They're multi-talented. They, they're good at lots of different things. They have lots of interests, lots of passions. But if you want to be known for something, it needs to be a clearly defined thing. And because people really struggle with that choice, the analysis paralysis, they fail to execute on everything that should come after that, which is where the success is. Do, do you have a process and looking at the book titles? I'm guessing the answer is yes. But in simple terms, how would you advise somebody that you met for coffee to work through that problem? Well, I had to work through the problem myself, <laughs> for sure, because it felt, I mean, intellectually, I think most people realize, oh, okay, if you, wanna, if you want to be referable, if you want people to recommend you, you need to make it easy for them to understand what you do. Otherwise, they're just going to say, well, Dory's nice. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's great. But uh, it's not really a compelling reason for someone to give me money, for instance. So you, you have to tighten that up. And yet, simultaneously, for me and I, I think for a lot of people, there's a real feeling like just feels like you're cutting off your arm to kind yeah. of artificially say, oh, well, you know, I blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I do personal brand consulting for M&A professionals or, oh, well, I do leadership development for nonprofit executives, you know, what, whatever the case may be. And it, it just feels very artificial. And so actually the way that I solved my problem and I actually think that it is not a bad strategy for other people as well, is ultimately to let the market decide. And what I mean by that is our job, as I conceive of it, is to place a lot of little bets, to create content, share your ideas somehow, put a lot of things out there, and then basically just monitor, see what resonates, see you know, if you're blogging, see what gets the most hits. If you are giving talks, see what gets people to come up to you afterwards or where you're getting a lot of questions. Wherever you're getting traction, go more in that direction. Because then at that point, it's not going to feel artificial. It's not going to feel like you're making some arbitrary decision. It actually will just feel like what it is, which is that you're moving towards something that's successful. And over time, the market will help you figure out what people are interested in getting from you. That was something that I did, and it was enormously helpful. In my case, I was trying, in 2009, I decided, this is the year that I'm going to get a book contract. That was my, my great ambition in life. And I wrote up three different book proposals, none of which sold, and it, it was so enormously frustrating. And then, you know, meanwhile, the reason they didn't sell was the publishers were basically like, blah, blah, you don't have a platform which translates to <laughs> you're not famous. And I was so mad, you know, but I but I had to just kind of go back to square one. And so I started blogging. And ultimately, I had this one article about professional reinvention, which became popular and got momentum. And I eventually ended up with literary agents coming to me asking if I had uh, thought about turning it into a book. And I was like, my God, this is what it feels like when you're wanted. And so I, I was not feeling bad about going more in that direction. I was feeling like, oh, okay, good. If people want a thing, I'm glad to give them a thing. But professional reinvention was not necessarily in any way something that I thought of as, oh, I'm going to make a definitive and deliberate strategic choice to go more in this direction. The market voted 
and then I I said, okay, market, let's do it. The, the picture I had in my mind there as you were talking was really quite interesting, and it's a way I haven't looked at it before. And your your sort of analogy of placing small bets or speculating, I sort of visualized like a strange creature probing different areas to see what reaction it was going to get. And really what what it all rolls back to is you need to be a creator first. That it's through your creativity and your expression that you'll create a reaction and the reactions are what will tell you what people respond to, what they want. Because business is essentially a value exchange. And if you don't express your values, you will never meet those those people that want to exchange with you. And you put it much more articulately articulately than I am managing to respond to it. No, I, I think I think that's great, Bob. I, I love, <laughs> so I love your put. formulation. <laughs> when we come to content, again, there's this whole thing of, on the one hand, if you want to be known for something, you need to be consistent. But on the other hand, we have lots of interests. So when you're trying lots of different kinds of content, you're sending out lots of different signals to see what resonates, how intentional or strategic are you being about or were you being about it? It's easy to sort of look back in retrospect when you're probably playing in the dark at the time. But how how strategic was the experimentation and, and where did you draw the edges in terms of, okay, this far and no further? This is the boundaries of what I want to be known for. Well, I, I think for me personally, in the early days, I... I think that that oftentimes we actually uh, do a disservice to people. We kind of scare them off by um, implying that that oh, you know, there was a there was a great uh, str- you know strategic clarity, and so therefore you know we we knew how everything was going to unfold. I had some strategic clarity, but in many ways it was just it was it was the reactive strategic clarity of okay. You know, these goddamn people are telling me I have to blog. I'll blog. <laughs> that was that was my, my take on it. Because my goal was to write a book. That was really what I wanted to do. And so I thought, all right, I will do the things that are necessary in order to be able to get a book contract. And so I was not really caring so much uh, about the particular topics. Now... With the executive coaching clients I have now, of course, I advise them to be a little more strategic than that. And, and what I what I tell them is, and I think this is pretty good advice, is ultimately what you want to try to be optimizing for is, you know, and, and this of course rarely, rarely happens, but in the ideal world, you want to be writing about the problems that your clients are experiencing or the solutions that you want to be providing such that if your ideal client happened to pick up the magazine or go to the website where you published your thing, what the reaction that we want is for them to read it and say, oh, this is it. This is exactly what I need. And then they will reach out and call you. Um, that's at least what we want to be optimizing for, even if that doesn't usually happen. In, in my case, I guess I did a little bit of that, but, but really I just had this almost monomaniacal focus of like, okay, <laughs> I got to build a platform. And so almost like whatever it took to get published. I mean, I, I would write about anything. The, the, goal, the goal was just like, what can I, what can I possibly comment on? Uh, what will the editors want? So I wrote, and, and frankly, I still do 
uh, about a really wide swath of things. Some of it was leadership. Some of it was personal brand. Some of it was networking. Some of it was, uh, you know, time management. There, there's a whole raft of different things. Uh, but it was really just like, okay, I've got to, I've got to write some, some articles. Let's, let's see what I can do. I'm going to attempt to turn on a dime here because I think this is very, very relevant. When you look back, one of the books you wrote was about reinventing yourself. And I think a lot of people, when they f first come to personal branding or content marketing, it's because something's triggered the desire for a change. There, there's a dissatisfaction for the way they've been doing things. They want to do things differently. And often that brings in an element of reinvention. And maybe the desire to not necessarily be know, known for all the things that you have always been known for. So assuming that, for example, the executive coaching clients you were talking about a moment ago, they're people who they were, they were happy with what they were doing, what they wanted to be known for. They just wanted to do it bigger. Whereas somebody that's just made a change, they're starting from zero. One of the problems that I've experienced myself is you put together a big grand plan for what you think you want to do. And you can spend a long time making this plan. But the problem is, it's a little bit like when you're in a car at night. You can, the headlights can only see 25 meters down the road. So you make all your plans based on what you can see for 25 meters. But the moment the car starts moving, the landscape's completely changed. And that was what I loved about the content or the yeah, deciding what you want to be known for as a, as a process of discovery rather than a decision, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. Thank you. That's, uh, that's a, a good way of putting it. But I guess my question is, that strategy works if you know where you want to go. But the reinvention piece, I said it was turning on a dime, but it's a slow turn. How would you advise people to approach that reinvention and that sort of rediscovery of who they want to be known as and then push out from there in that process, that sort of gradual probing? Yeah. So when people are reinventing themselves, you're exactly right. I mean, if, if someone has a clear picture, okay, I want to leave my job and become a full-time photographer or something like that that gives you a North Star that you can then operationalize against. You can come up with your action plan and, and figure out, oh, okay, I need to do this and this and this, and it will, over time, get me there. But it is a much harder challenge for people because there are a lot of professionals out there that perhaps know they want to make some kind of a change, but they're not quite sure what. They, they're not quite sure, in, you know, in what direction or where they want to go. And sometimes that can feel a little bit paralyzing to people because... They feel like, you know, and this is not irrational. Oh, but if I don't know where I'm going, then I, I guess I just need to sit still because I, I don't want to waste time or effort moving in the wrong direction, let's say. Yeah. And so what I would suggest, and, and um, in my book, Reinventing You, of course, I go into great detail about this. One of my favorite strategies is actually to kind of flip the problem on its head because if you don't specifically know the, the one thing, you know, the direction that you specifically want to go in, I'm actually a fan of using the process of elimination to figure out where you don't want to go. So for instance, which is frankly a lot easier. So in the book, I profile a woman named Elizabeth Amini, who was looking to make a career transition. And she had a, a fairly blurry vision, shall we say, of where she wanted to go. She had, you know, five or six different fields 
that were interesting to her. And I think even even for someone who's unsure of where they want to go, you can probably limit it down to something like that. It's probably not, you know, oh, there's 25 fields I might want to explore. You know, you, you can probably get it down to five or six. So for Elizabeth, it might be, you know, venture capital or real estate development or, or you know, things like that. And so what she decided to do, which I thought was so great, is she had a very methodical process where for each profession, she decided she would try to get what she called 10 data points about it. And a data point could be an informational interview. It could be, you know, some, some kind, maybe it's reading a book, maybe it's doing a kind of job shadowing or something like that, but some kind of additional knowledge to help her understand more about what it actually was like. And her goal was not necessarily to find what her soulmate career was. Her goal was actually much more about ruling out certain careers. And so she was always asking the hard questions about, you know, well, what do you, what do you dislike about this? What's the worst part of your job? And she was trying to find the things that would make it incompatible with her and her goals and her lifestyle so that she ultimately could narrow it down and find that one or two paths that she wanted to optimize toward. That is a really, really smart way of approaching it. I had never considered that. It's so obvious when you describe it that way. Um, it's just a very, very simple process. Just spend a bit of time being in fantasy mode, make a big list and then work through them looking for all the impracticalities and what's left is probably your dream. It's a really, a really neat way of doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think for most people, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to find the perfect thing, the right thing. It is a heck of a lot easier to, to, to be able to put on our, our critical hat and say, okay, why is this wrong for me? Why is this not going to work? And that information is just as valuable, if not more valuable. So I think I would like to talk about the long game. Now, we live in a world that just goes ridiculously fast. It's so fast that most people can't keep up. Most people's social media feed moves faster than anybody can really come close to finding useful. It's just way too fast. And everything that you see in social media in particular is kind of demanding you need to be making six figures yesterday or or at least seven figures by next week it has to happen if you're not doing that you're probably failing we're all being fed these strategies that are going to fix things by next monday it's seven figures in seven weeks that kind of thing it does fuel a lot of hype around in the online business world, you need to be able to move fast. But the truth is, amazing things happen slowly. And a lot of people get very frustrated about what they can't achieve in the short term, but they forget what they can achieve in the long term. And that was why I love the theme of your book, because you really put some wrappers around that and some some logic. But I guess you wrote the book, so there's no point in me talking about it. Tell me about the long game book, because I really want to spend a bit of time talking about that. Yeah, thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. So you're exactly right. I wrote the long game and was interested in this question because so often in our society, um, not necessarily because of social media, because I think in many ways it's a function of human nature, but social media does not help. Let's be clear. <laughs> we are pushed to a kind of short-term thinking where it's just comparison all the time. We're looking around at other people. 
Seems seems like other people have it figured out. Seems like other people are getting there faster. And, you know, simultaneously, everyone knows, everyone is willing to spout the mantra, oh yes, you know, success takes time, nothing happens overnight. But the big problem is like, well, what does not overnight mean? We know it's not one night, but is it two? Yeah, probably it's two. That must be it. <laughs> of course it's not. And we get frustrated, we get discouraged, we often quit and give up way too early because nobody ever tells you if it's two nights or a hundred or 10,000. And I wanted in writing the long game to be able to provide, hopefully, a framework for people and encouragement for people who are working on long-term meaningful projects, the kind that often do take longer than we want it to, to be able to really think through that process and hopefully gain the courage from it to be able to persevere even when you're in those dark days when the results are not showing yet and you're not even entirely sure if it's going to happen. But that is what you have to get through in order to get to the other side and get the success that, that you want and that you deserve. I love that. I think that there's often this cliche that I hear again and again of the this phrase, the 15-year overnight success. You see somebody that seems to suddenly make it, but you don't see the decade of work that went into getting to that point where things just suddenly happened. And there isn't an awful lot of, I guess, anecdotal content around that. And there's certainly not much in terms of structure. But I'm curious to know, when you are looking at the long game, a lot of people struggle with motivation around sort of, okay, it's going to take me potentially 10 years to just lay the foundations for what I know could potentially be a success. But what happens if it's not? The truth is nothing that's worth having is fast. That's just a fact. You can get lucky. Lucky people are outliers. The rest of us need a plan. We need to work that plan and, and gradually, incrementally sort of aggregate success upon success over time. What have you learned about how to maintain the momentum around the motivation on that journey? Yeah, there's really a, a couple of key pack, factors here, Bob, when it comes to maintaining motivation. The first, which I think is really important, and it's something that a lot of people fail to do up front to their detriment, is it is really important to the best extent possible to scope out what it actually would take and to have a well-formed hypothesis before embarking on whatever your journey is. And what I mean by that is a lot of people just plunge into something and it's really a blind spot. They don't know that they don't know it, but they assume, oh, well, I should be able to do X in, you know, whatever amount of time. And sometimes that's accurate, and sometimes it is wildly inaccurate. Uh, Jeff Bezos tells a story in one of his Amazon shareholder letters about a handstand coach. And the handstand coach revealed that the average person takes uh, thinks that it's going to take about two weeks in order to be able to master a handstand. And it turns out that is not correct. It takes six months of daily practice. Now, this is just you know sort of a, a random example but it is a 12x difference. And if you can imagine how that plays out in our own lives, our own businesses, our own careers, 
that we are walking around with assumptions that we feel like are perfectly sensible, perf you know, perfectly well put together, and they're off by a factor of 12, no wonder the average person would give up after two months of trying to, to do a handstand. They feel like, oh, this is ridiculous. This is taking me, you know, so much longer than it should. Well, guess what? If, if you're giving up after two months, you're, you're not even a third of the way there. So in most cases, not everything, but in most cases, for whatever path you're trying to go on, there are some role models. There are some people who have done roughly what you're trying to do before. Now, might you do better and go faster? You might, absolutely. But it is really useful to know what an average might be so that you can calibrate against it and not get disheartened too soon because your expectations were off. That's number one. And then number two, what really becomes crucial here is having a trusted group of friends around you. And specifically, these should not just be cheerleaders. They should also be people who are informed about your industry or your field so that they actually can give you meaningful feedback about what you're doing, about your rate of progress, about how things are moving forward. Because in the moment, for all of us, we actually have a hard time being rational. Sometimes we, we might continue to persist too long because we have this kind of sunk cost fallacy that we're operating on. And sometimes we might get too depressed because we feel like, oh, it's not working. You know, you're in the pit of despair. If you have friends around you that you trust, they can be the mirrors that help you understand what actually is rational as compared to the distortion lens that we all sometimes get when the issue is is our issue and not someone else's. I think one of the things you mentioned there was essentially traveling companions in terms of the people around you who are on a similar journey. And that's something that I've found particularly powerful. And I think we're all accustomed to, again, particularly in social media, but also in the wider media of seeing very successful business owners as the sort of successful loner. When in reality, that's almost guaranteed to not be the case. I'm often surprised when I shouldn't be, when I meet very successful business owners and I ask them, what's, what's in the toolbox for you? And often one of the most important tools in the toolbox for them is their mastermind peer group. And that's kind of what you were describing there, I sense. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right, Bob. And mastermind is an interesting concept. I mean, I, th there's all different levels of formality of masterminds. Some are groups that, that literally do meet on a regular basis. You know, hey, here's, here's the mastermind, you know, every third Monday or, or whatever it is. Um, sometimes there are paid masterminds that, uh, that people uh, have assembled. I, in fact, run one, um, which is helpful for convening groups of people if you yourself don't necessarily um, know the right people that you want to be connecting with. And so you can be part of a paid group where the, those folks are curated for you. And also, it could be as informal as, you know, let's put it in air quotes, mastermind. Uh, it's not necessarily a group of people that are meeting regularly. They may not even know each other, but they are the people that you have become close to that you are sort of treating as your kitchen cabinet and you know, oh, if I ever have a situation about XYZ, I'll go to Bob 
And if I ever have a situation about ABC, I'll go to Sarah. And it's just the people in your corner. And so it could be as formal or as informal as you'd like. But the key is really to think clearly about your network and not treat it as an afterthought. Yeah. And I think also a lot of people underestimate how open people are to actually being approached as, again, air quotes, mentors, advisors, or peers, just to have these off the record, open conversations. Because one thing I know to be true about most business owners, and probably the truth, the same is true of executives, is that they are kind of, a, a they're accustomed to walking alone. And when somebody actually wants to stretch out the hand of friendship in that way, it's often welcomed. It's rarely, rarely slapped away. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I did a, a piece a while back for the Harvard Business Review called Build a Network Even When You Don't Think You Need One. And it was really inspired because I had an executive coaching client who kind of self-identified as a lone wolf. And, you know, you can get pretty far like that. It's not, it's not you know, something that is, uh, I mean, w- what makes it insidious in some ways is it's not a disqualifier up front. If you're smart, if you're talented, um, you can succeed pretty well and and get along with the attitude for years of, I don't need people, I just I just do it myself. And, you know, great, that works for a long time, but the problem is it works until it doesn't. Because mm-hmm. eventually you're hitting this limit where you might have a good reputation, you might be very smart, but the problem is you only have a reputation with, like, the three people who are right around you and have worked with you. Nobody else knows you because you don't have a broader network of people who have been exposed to you and you don't have a network of people who are amplifying uh, your message and Uh talking about you when you are not in the room. And it becomes a a limiting factor, especially when people are at that critical point where they're trying to um, reach to a a higher level in, in being an executive or being a leader. And um, all of a sudden you realize, oh, wow, I guess I do need this. And like anything else, it's very hard to build that overnight. Even if you're, even if you're passionate about it, relationships are not a thing you can snap your fingers and manufacture. No, absolutely. They do take time and they need to be nurtured. That nurturing is important. They need to give as well as take. I would like to talk about your content journey a little bit, because obviously you've written a whole bucket of books. You also have a busy YouTube channel. You do speaking. And I'm curious to know, okay, jump back in a time machine before any of that was real. What was that journey like? And what what were the sort of points at which you thought, hey, this is working? Well, I would say there's there's a couple of places where we can begin the story. One was that I actually started my career as a journalist, a print journalist. And uh. it, it had a rather ill-fated end because I uh, did that for about a year, actually a little less than a year, and I was laid off from my job. Um, it, right, they didn't. They did. <laughs> yes, very, very upsetting. Uh, what was even more upsetting was they laid me off the day before 9-11. It was, it was September 10th, 2001. And so it was a very inauspicious time for me to be looking for a new job. So anyway, I... But I'm grateful for that year that I spent because essentially what it trained me to do was to write quickly, more more than anything else. I mean, the good thing about training as a journalist, and I recommend this for anyone, 
is the concept of writer's block is off the table. You know, the, yeah. you know, the answer to, to um, writer's block is, you know, in journalism is like, you're fired. <laughs> so there's just not that room. And I, I think it's it's very healthy because you learn to treat writing not as this kind of precious thing where you have to be an artiste, but as just, okay, this is this is the thing that I need to do. I need to do it well, but it's not emotionally fraught the way that some people make it. So uh, I, I did learn to write really fast because I needed to. And then later on, as I started creating content, we talked a little bit about this. I was not... I was not especially interested in becoming a blogger or, you know, writing articles per se. What I wanted to write was a book, but I came to learn that I needed to engage in platform building activities. And I figured that for me, since I had been a print journalist, that the lowest hanging fruit was to write blogs and, and write articles. So that was what I started in on. And I just committed myself to doing it assiduously because I realized it was uh, the path forward toward what I needed to do. And then sort of moving beyond that from the books through speaking and then into YouTube, which seems to be pretty busy now. How, how did that transition go from, okay, you, you wrote a book to actually there's a business here? Yeah, so I wrote... My so my so the the timeline here is I started my business in my consulting business in 2006, and actually my first book didn't come out until 2013. So there was seven years before then of business building, where through the very traditional means, which you know most small business owners will recognize of uh, referrals and you know just sort of pounding the pavement. I was landing business and uh, making my business work. But it is true that once I started creating content on a kind of quote-unquote broader stage, my business was able to change because instead of the uh, the smaller projects, you know, like a whatever, coming up with a marketing strategy or a social media strategy for a local nonprofit or something like that, which is what I often did in the early days of my business, I began to get sought out because when when you create content this is uh, I've spent a lot of time over the past decade really trying to understand the process of how one becomes a recognized expert in one's field and I um, wrote about it in my book standout which I know you've you've read and I um, created an online course and community called recognized expert based on this but one of the key pillars is content creation and I realized that this is kind of the the linchpin in so many ways because the truth is if you do not share your ideas publicly people shockingly will not know what your <laughs> ideas are and so you need to do it but once you do and this this happened for me uh in publishing the book i began to have people seek me out so first of all it was much easier to get consulting work but also i began to have opportunities with things like giving speeches that i did not really have before paid speeches roll on to YouTube because YouTube really kind of brings us back full circle to networking and I'm curious to know I had to look through your YouTube channel earlier and you're not doing YouTube in the traditional style where you make a video you talk about a thing it seems to be a little bit richer than that so maybe just explain to me obviously Dory Clark is strategic what do you what's what's your YouTube play 
Yeah, absolutely. And and to be clear, uh, I think it, it's so interesting. It's always fascinating to sort of see how people interpret things. But I don't really think of it as a YouTube play. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm interested that that's, uh, that that's how it's, it's coming across, which is kind of cool. Um, so specifically, I think largely what you're referring to is for the past year, since August of 2020, I have hosted a weekly interview show for Newsweek, which is a uh, uh. A, a weekly news magazine in the United States. And so as a result of that, I do interviews w- typically with authors, uh, not not 100%, but typically with authors about, you know, the, the theme of the show is called Better. So it's, it's generally like business advice or life advice uh, about how do you optimize things uh, in terms of your, your performance, your happiness, your enjoyment, your wealth, whatever it is. And so as a result of that, um, just kind of de facto, uh, I've been creating a lot of content which lives on YouTube, but I really thought of it in many ways. So I'm a big fan of trying to kill multiple birds with one stone. So the other pillars of my recognized expert, you know, three-part framework besides content creation, it's social proof, uh, essentially your credibility in the marketplace, Mm -hmm. and your network. And so... I pursued the Newsweek opportunity and was glad that I had the opportunity to do that because it really kills three birds with one stone. Certainly it is content. Um, also, it is social proof because I'm doing this interview for a publication that people, at least in the U.S., have heard of. And it's networking because it's all interview-based. So I'm able to connect with people, some of whom are folks I already know and some of whom are folks that I want to meet. And so as as part of that, it's a really effective way of getting getting to connect with people, affiliating my brand with a respected brand, and having essentially a forcing function to create new content, and getting paid to do it. So this is a, a program, part of the reason I don't necessarily think of it as a YouTube play, is that it's run uh, as a essentially a LinkedIn Live, but it cross-streams to other platforms. So it runs on Newsweek's LinkedIn channel, uh, but it also cross-streams to both Newsweek and my personal right. Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook accounts. So it's putting content out in all of those places, and then it gets archived uh, on on a more permanent basis so people can access it on YouTube. So there's a, a lot of great opportunity to be able to uh, just, you know, can continue to win the SEO battle and uh, have a lot of content created that way. Yeah, and it is some super efficient and elegant repurposing. I love that. So this is the Personal Brand Entrepreneur Show. And one of the things that you touch on in Entrepreneurial You, I managed to say the word that time, is revenue streams, in particular multiple revenue streams. And we could dig into that in a kind of arbitrary sort of listicle type way, or we could actually be specific and talk about your revenue streams and the reason I think that's practical is because it at the same time is very efficient and it will let people know all about all the ways that they can engage with you so what does your business look like under the bonnet that's my question yeah absolutely so in terms of the ways that I earn revenue it usually is toggling somewhere around eight or nine or ten different streams at a at a different time and which sounds like a lot, although one of the points that I make in Entrepreneurial You is that over time, it's not that hard to keep a plate spinning. The part's hard is to get it started spinning. 
Uh, so what I like to suggest is that people focus on creating one new revenue stream per year and really get that clicking in and optimized, and then you can move on to the next thing. So in terms of my own business, the way that I'm earning revenue, um, one, this is, this is uh, small, but of course it's writing books. So like The Long Game, for instance. Uh, a, a larger one is my executive coaching work. Uh, another larger one is the online courses that I do. And sometimes that's for an external platform like LinkedIn Learning or Udemy. And sometimes that is uh, courses that I've created and sell on my own platform like Recognized Expert. Yeah. I also uh, earn a little bit of revenue from my teaching work at Duke and at Columbia. Um, sometimes there's corporate sponsorships. So I might um, do like blog posts or social media or things like that, promotions for companies. I do... Um, I guess there's my there's sort of media type thing, so I get revenue from my Newsweek show. And I used to do a lot of corporate keynote speaking. Um, now I'm doing uh, less. <laughs> there's not much, is there? <laughs> yeah, doing, doing less during COVID, although some of it has switched to uh, webinars and virtual. So that's uh, a smaller piece right at the moment, although it is still a piece. And, um, oh, and I run masterminds, as we were talking about earlier. So I do an annual mastermind, uh, like a year-long mastermind uh, for, it's called the Trajectory Mastermind, and that's for mid-six-figure entrepreneurs that are looking to level up. And it's a very cool name. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, I guess the last piece, uh, I might be missing something, but I think that's pretty much the highlights. But the last piece would be, again, something that has um, tapered off temporarily, at least during COVID, but we'll come back. And that is in in person, uh, sort of one off workshops. So I have done I have done one one ones in the past, like a couple of years ago pre COVID. I did one called Land Your Book Deal, and so it was a a one day workshop that people came to in New York, where they got to meet literary agents and they learned all about how to get a book deal. Or I did one in Boston uh, a couple of years before that, which I turned into later uh, a online course called Writing for High Profile Publications, and I had a couple of editors from the Harvard Business Review there talking about how they evaluate pieces and sort of talking through the strategy of how people can break in to high-profile publications, whether it's HBR or some of the other top ones in the industry. So those are the, the principal ways that I earn revenue. And I'm, I'm grateful you went into such detail because I think it's important for people to understand the strength and the diversity of revenue streams that obviously we have COVID right now. If speaking was your main revenue stream, you wouldn't be living in a ninth floor apartment in Manhattan anymore. Um, but that diversity gives you the strength and it's like building a solid foundation. I spent a little bit of time training with a craftsman to build these. You probably, if you're in the US, you have no idea what a dry stone wall is, but is the walls that you see all over the this countryside in Scotland and they look like they're built from very big rocks but actually inside these walls there's lots and lots of little pebbles and it's the little pebbles that give the whole wall its strength and revenue streams are a lot like that it's a lot of entrepreneurs will sniff at modest revenue streams thinking that's not worth it until it's totally worth it yeah that's that's exactly right my good friend Jenny Blake talks about her time during COVID and she had, you know, similarly, she, you know, she had a lot of revenue from speaking and things like that. And ironically, she had this kind of recurring membership community that 
wasn't even necessarily that large. It wasn't even necessarily this this sort of huge thing. But when everything got wiped out, it became this um, this sort of financial lifeline for her business as she was pivoting and uh, and reshaping because so much of what she had been doing had been keynote based. Mm. So I'm looking at the time, Dory. We have really gone some places. As you mentioned a few times, you have some brilliant resources on your website, some of which are paid, but unusually, they look awesome. Lots of people's courses and things, frankly, look a little bit garbage, <laughs> but yours look really, really tempting. So I would encourage everyone to go and have a look at that. But if people do want to engage with you, if, they, if you want to, if, if people want to connect with you, how would you like them to do that? Well, I appreciate it, Bob. Thank you. And one free resource that I hope folks will be interested in, and it sounds like, uh, you know, I know your readers, uh, your listeners have an entrepreneurial mindset. Uh, I, when my book Entrepreneurial You was released, which is fundamentally a book about how do you create multiple revenue streams in your business, I created a free resource, which was an 88 question entrepreneurial you self-assessment to help people think through in their own business, how they might create additional revenue streams. And so for folks who are interested in that and, you know, finding, finding new ways to tap into revenue and add to the bottom line, uh, they can get the self-assessment for free at doryclark.com slash entrepreneur. I am just writing that down and I will make sure that's in the show notes. Dory, I need to ask you my signature question. What is one thing you do now that you wish you'd started five years ago? Thank you, Bob. So my, my answer to that is actually, I feel, uh, I, I feel fortunate because I started it uh, not five years ago, but I started, I did in fact start it uh, close to five years ago. So I, I'm, I'm going to give this answer anyway, even though it's, uh, it's slightly close in time to your cutoff. But <laughs> I, I was never really into health and physical fitness, like uh, enough, you know, I mean, I was not like completely indolent. And I, I played sports when I was a kid, but I was not a big gym person. But I actually, uh, a little over five years ago, I went to a uh, conference and it was this like really terribly organized conference. I was so bitter <laughs> the whole time. I'm like, this is rubbish. And I was, I was just not meeting people because they had not set it up in a thoughtful way that you could meet people. It's, you know, it's just ridiculous. But anyway... This was one of these like very um, sort of broy yet new age kind of places, and so uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it was an interesting combination. You an amazing picture. <laughs> so while I was like riding by myself on like this conference bus, there was, I overheard these two women, and they were talking, and they were like, "Oh my God, have you visited Sabine?" And I, and you know, my ears are like perking up. I'm like, what are they talking about? And so apparently, this place had like a essentially like a resident psychic. And they're like, oh, she's so incredible. She's so amazing. And I was so bored and disgusted with the entire conference that I was like, all right, I'm gonna go to the psychic lady because <laughs> it sounds like she's like the one good thing at this conference. And so basically, I go, I get, a, I manage to sneak in and get a half hour appointment with this psychic lady, and she says to me. Um, she, you know, I walk in and, and she does her sort of like magic psychic lady hands where she's, you know, like getting, <laughs> getting the message like, oh, oh. and, and she, uh, and I, I loved, I loved what, what she said. I'm not necessarily a person that is like going to do exactly what the psychics are telling me, but 
I realized that she had a point. In her point, she said, she said, you, you have freed your mind. And then she said, and now it's time to free your body. And I realized what I, you know, my interpretation of that was it was true that I had uh, invested a lot of time and a lot of energy in my career, in my writing, in my, you know, just building my professional life. But I really had not invested in my health in the same way. And so shortly after I got back from that, I decided that I would get more serious about it. So I started joining uh, ClassPass, which is this sort of app where you get to go to all these different gyms and try these different classes. And so I, I did that all the way through the pandemic. And, you know, you get stymied a little bit with the pandemic because they closed the gyms and things like that. But now, you know, that things are, are over... I have been going back and, and being much more focused. I, you know, I even worked out today. So I feel, I feel good about that. And I do wish that I had started it earlier, but, uh, but I got, I got on the bandwagon. I'm really wishing I hadn't asked this question because I feel so bad. <laughs> well, uh, I haven't been to the gym for a very long time. Well, you, you know, it's either start by going to the gym or start by going to the psychic Bob, one or the other. <laughs> so what's your favorite kind of exercise now? What's your favorite class? Oh, well, I haven't actually started going back mostly to classes uh -huh. because uh, for, in Manhattan, a lot of the gyms are still closed. And so to oh, me, right. it doesn't make sense to, to join ClassPass because most, most of it is still virtual, which I find a little bit blah. So um, I've, I've been doing the slightly boring stuff, which is either the bike or the treadmill, but I listen to audiobooks while I do it. And so I can make it reasonably entertaining. I also have a bike. Do you prefer a road bike? A sort of static bike or mountain bike yeah i i uh i do i do like biking um you know out in the wild but um but i do not currently possess a bike living in manhattan it's you know it's <laughs> oh no i guess not any that'd just be dangerous yeah it's it's i mean there's there's paths and things like that but but honestly anything extraneous that you can opt not to own when you live in manhattan is a good idea um, so, so no, I'm, I'm specifically talking about the, uh, the stationary bikes at the gym. All right. Dory Clark, you've been an awesome guest. I, um, again, if people want to find you, what's your website address and what's your favorite social media? Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. Uh, the social media where I, I probably over index or spend the most time is, uh, is <laughs> LinkedIn. Uh, unfortunately I've hit the number, I've hit the maximum number of connections. Like who knew, who knew that was a thing, but people can follow me <laughs> on LinkedIn and I have a, a LinkedIn newsletter. Uh, I even created a URL. Actually, if you go to doryclark.com slash LinkedIn, you can, uh, you can follow me there. Uh, and in terms of people learning more about me and getting free self-assessments and looking up articles and all the, all the things, uh, the hub is doryclark.com. Dory Clark, you have been awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Bob, thank you so much. Before I go, just a quick reminder to subscribe and join our Facebook group. You'll find a link in the show notes or visit amplifyme.fm forward slash insiders. Also connect with me wherever you hang out. You'll find me on all the social platforms at Bob Gentle. If you enjoyed the show, then I would love a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It would make my day. And if you shared the show with a friend, you would literally make my golden list. My name's Bob Gentle. Thanks to you for listening, and I'll see you next week.